Hello and welcome to this discussion of brand new book, The Prophets of Doom, with its author, Dr. Nima Parvini. Very nice to finally meet you. Wow, thank you for having me. Well, cheers for asking, because I really enjoyed this. As I told you off air, I breezed through it in about four days. It is eminently readable. And for myself, and I think lots of other people that will end up reading this, this will be the first time we encounter some of these writers, particularly because you made a conscious effort to revive some of the theorists of cyclical history that have fallen out of favour. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's very important. And this, the, one of the reasons they've fallen out of favour, as, as you were saying, is because lots of them are wedded not only to a non-progressive idea of linear history, things always improving, which, I mean, just look around us, it doesn't really feel that that's the case right now, but also because they wed their theories of history on the emergence of a great man, a kind of Caesar-like figure, and some of them were the forebears or contemporaries of some of the failed Caesar figures of the 20th century. And so history has deemed them the refuse of the sin bin, I think quite unfairly, as you've shown. Um, I mean, w w one of the interesting things about cyclical history is that it kind of comes in and out of fashion depending on how things are going. So um, there's a period in the late 19th century, just before World War I, where people are starting to think something's going wrong here. They could feel it in the water. And that's where you get people like, uh, well, lots of people reading Carlyle. Brooks Adams is uh, wrote his book in 1895. Um, and whenever people get that feeling that things aren't quite going in the right direction, people kind of rediscover the cyclical history. So that was one little period where it came into vogue. Then there was the actual First World War. Um, and Spengler wrote Decline of the West uh, during, that, during that war. Um, and then in the interwar period, there was also this, because there was the Great Depression. During the Great Depression, a lot of people um, were thinking along these lines. That's when Arnold Toynbee wrote his monumental 12 volume study, A Study of History. Um, but then after World War II, um, it went, you know, a lot of these writers went out of fashion for a period, but there was a brief revival. I will say there was a brief revival in the 70s during the era of stagflation um, when, you know, I mean, this was the period of the three-day week and the, you know, the winter of discontent before Thatcher comes in. That period, uh, there was a kind of mini revival. That's when Glove wrote uh, uh, The Fate of Empires. Um, but then from the, I guess you'd call it the neoliberal order from Thatcher and Reagan uh, and Blair, things can only get better. During that whole period, the line was going up. So cyclical history falls away again. So, I mean, I, I mean, I'm just saying in fairness, yes, there's been a concerted effort to disparage these thinkers, but they also just keep on coming back in, almost in a cyclical way. So mm -hmm. it's kind of, I was quite interested to find that out when I was uh, researching uh, the book. And I think that, you know, this book coming out now, um, you know, I start the book with a quote from Tony Blair talking mm. about how things can only get better. And I think that uh, a, a lot of people in this country, in America, in Europe, 
you know, I think poll figures are north of 75% of people, wherever you ask them, think that things aren't getting better, they're getting worse. The feeling of decline is all around us. If you are, if you go to a pub or whatever and you just ask a random person, oh, do you think things are going well? <laughs> um, nobody thinks things are going well at the moment. Everyone's straw poll of the taxi drivers that you meet, it, especially because those are the guys that have the most immediate experience from a, from a wide range of driving around everywhere. And if you just say, oh, what do you think London's like at the moment? They will launch into a soliloquy about the destruction of its culture, the blockading of its streets, how Sadiq Khan has ruined everything. And that's from your, your average boomer, 50-year-old native Englishman to the Nigerian dad that's moved over 10 years ago, they're all seeing a tangible decline. Yes, and uh, um, you know, this is what when sometimes when you're talking to people and you question capital P progress, which this book uh, tries to do, um, they're like, oh, well, how can you say that? You know, things have never been safer. Things have never been, you know, uh, if you look in the, in the long durée, as they say, um, uh, you know, you could have done, I mean, there was a guy on, uh, I was interacting with on Twitter mm. the other day, you said, oh, you know, you could have died of a splinter 200 years ago and look at, uh, look at the, how safe you are now type thing and how many like goods and luxuries we have. And on the one hand, yes, that is true. But on the other hand, it's easy to start poking holes in it, uh, just using national statistics. Uh, if you look at the crime rate, for example, from 1900 to now, it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's huge. This is uh, one of your great critiques of Stephen Pinker. So he's, yes, he's, he, the, he. he's the arch progressive with enlightenment <laughs> now. But then you look back at better angels of our nature and his theory is, okay, moral progression is when crime rate go down. And you're like, okay, well, would you object to when in dictatorships and different forms of government other than liberal democracy, crime goes down? Because that undermines your theory just a tad, Mr. Pinker. Yeah, but, but I mean, what I'm saying, if you look at the crime, if the crime rate in Europe and in Britain and in America, they all, as uh, liberal democracy has progressed, the per capita crime rate has massively increased. I'm talking about 20, 30 fold increase from 1900 to now. Um, or you can just have a look, you can look at other metrics, like there's um, something I mentioned in the book is called the, uh, the female happiness paradox. Mm. You know, as um, you know, the forces of progress have progressed, people have just got less and less happy over time. Uh, anxiety rates through the roof, depression, suicide rates. I mean, they all, they all tell a story. Um, and that is one way of kind of poking holes in the narrative of progress. Um, yeah, and that's why people don't feel that things are getting better at the, mo at the moment, because people see all these things all around them. But I wanted to in this book, almost like that, yes, you can have a few quick dunks on somebody on Twitter using those sorts of stats, or it makes a decent YouTube video, um, but it doesn't really get to the heart of the matter. And also, if we reject progress as a narrative, what do we have in it, or what can we put in its place? What are the alternative models? Um, and this is something I wanted to do in the book. Uh, now, there are some people, I, now I don't talk about this, but there are some people like uh, Ludwig von Mises or Karl Popper 
who actually reject the idea that history has a shape at all. Just like, you know, these are just, we can't predict what humans do. Um, and it, in a way, this is a pushback against that as well as the pushback against, because uh, that's almost like a, the, the chaos theory of history or something. I think that things are a little bit more predictable than that, that we do see these patterns of rise and fall. Um, you do, I mean, anybody who studied history for any amount of time knows that the line does not keep on going up. What comes up will come down. Um, and that, uh, in, a, in a strange way, successes generate their own loss conditions. Um, I think the denial of people's abilities to recognise patterns in that way has a commonality with Schmidt's criticism of depoliticizing forces, of liberalism, of technology, of things being an unmitigated good if they just keep increasing and expanding. What that'll do is that'll blind you to the existential threats to your way of life. And I think, unfortunately, Mises, even though he might have had some very good readings on economics, was blind to the predictable nature of human beings there. He, he thinks that we're um, purely economic rational actors, something that, that, that lots of the critics in here criticise as, as homo economicus. You know, there's mm. only one sort of step to global homo economicus and then you're serving the regime interests, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, another one of uh, kind of, if you take the logic of Schmidt and writers like that, uh, liberalism is a kind of desire to escape the political, right? It's a desire to pretend that uh, or, or that there, there can be this space away from power and politics. And I think um, when you start really looking at history, a lot of issues actually start to look downstream from politics and power, um, including economic issues. For example, it just so happens that the British Empire, to give an example of a complete cycle where we see the rise and we see the, the fall, in its rising point, it was straightforwardly mercantilist, it was protectionist. Of course, it made sense to be that way at that time because they were expanding with a military, aristocratic, warrior caste on top um, with, a, with a kind of, with a set of merchants, I guess, a merchant caste um, kind of walk, walking hand in hand with them. At some point, that flips around, so it's actually the the merchants who are on top and the the warrior caste who are supporting them. Um, at a certain moment, when you become the global hegemon, you control the boundaries of the free trade area. And power wants to expand. So the way to expand the, the, the area of your control is by saying, well, Hey, Belgium, I think it would be a good idea if you engaged in free trade with us. And that expands the zone of control, even to rivals. Like Belgium had their own little empire, but at a certain point, they became within the British Empire's uh, zone of influence, you might say. That cycle of rising and falling of empires also happens towards the end of the British Empire. This is something that fellow reactionary pointed out to me when, when she was reading into the history of the NHS. She found that the Attlee government post-war 
wanted enough money to consolidate, based on their manifesto promises, all of the various wartime medical efforts into a national health service. And because they didn't have enough money due to the amount they owed to America, they went to the American foreign policy lobby and said, OK, well, what can we do? And they said, well, give us British-controlled Palestine to solve the refugee problem and we'll give you the money for the NHS. And so one power rises, both Israel and the US on the world stage, and Britain falls away. So yeah, I can I can definitely see that that yeah, I mean, play that you put in there. And well, and well if you if you see America as an empire, one of the only empires ever to not admit that it's an empire, yes. by the way. Um, and you look at something like Churchill's land lease deal during World War II, that was str- a straightforward deal. You give us tanks and weaponry and help us win the war. In exchange, we just give you bases and just give away huge, huge swathes of our power and influence. Um, so in a, in a strange way, the American empire directly used its leverage and position at that point to inherit the, the free trade network that had grown up. But of course, there was a period of protectionism before then, before World War II, because the British empire was on the downswing. And um, how, can, how can you put this? These things all make sense when you see who's at which ruling class is on top at any given time, and also what their immediate interests are. And the ideology, it's laissez-faire, it's protectionism, it's socialism, actually comes secondary to whatever those needs are at the time, if that makes any sense. And, and the character of the ruling elite, as as lots of these people have yeah. talked about, it's it's less about what the ideas are of the period and more about whether or not the people who are in the positions to enforce the ideas are capable of inheriting them versus what what preconceived notions they have and enforce on a civilization. So I think it's worth kicking off with the with the genealogy you do in the first chapter then. So first off you you went through most of the ancient Greek conceptions of, of cyclical history and this was this was Pol- uh, Polybius and Hesiod. Do you mind disentangling those a little bit? Yeah, so the uh in the in the ancient period there's a there's a number of different cyclical histories that coalesce. Um the most famous one is is Polybius. Uh that that is actually He's coming after Plato and Aristotle, who have their own versions of it. But he kind of, I think he perfects it. He gives it the shape that most people know. Um, and that is the um, the idea that um, y- you get uh, uh, a culture, let's say, that has a leader, a, that a leader arises who is wise and just. Because at a certain point, at a certain size, a society will need somebody to start adjudicating on internal matters, a judge, essentially. And, you know, somebody who's wise and just may arise, and it's natural then for that person to become the king, the monarch. Um, and he rules due to his merits, I guess. Being given uh, the mandate of heaven. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this can come in a different form. This guy could be a warrior, for example, he could be a warrior priest. He could be like a spiritual uh, type. He could be a Genghis Khan type. He can come in different forms, um, but ultimately, there's no question as to the qualities of this ruler. Um, but over time, his uh, you know he will die and have a, a son who will have a son, and over time, the quality of that monarch, the original things that 
made that guy the king will degenerate and uh, he will become the, the weaker king will start to become more tyrannical, start to become um, uh, dictatorial in a way. And the elites under him, the nobility, the aristocrats, will find a way to replace him with themselves. So an aristocracy, a ruling class, comes to replace the monarch because the monarch is a tyrant. Now you need this aristocratic nobility to rule in place because they, um, you know, they're fighting for freedom or they're fighting for justice or something. But then in exactly the same way, after a couple of generations, they start to become corrupt. They start to rule things for themselves as opposed to for the common good. And the people start getting upset. And this is where you get the kind of democratic spirit. You get the, so they degenerate. Uh, the aristocratic class become an oligarchy and they need to be overthrown. So hence you get the democratic spirit arising. But then democracy in itself has the capacity to become, to de degenerate and become like something like mob justice, or you can get, uh, I mean, one of the things Polybius talks about is that um, very quickly there can ar arise a champion of the people, see this kind of Caesar character, and then like the cycle starts again, because you've basically recreated the monarch. Um, so that's the Polybius cycle. Mm. Um, and that is that is the one I think a lot of people will have come across. It's inherited wholesale by Machiavelli, for example, um, or like you can see it in Shakespeare. You can see it like it ha that's had a lot of influence over history. Um, but then alongside that, Hesiod has got the a much so that's a political cycle because it's based on who the rulers are, and it's these cycles we're talking about are four or five generations each, you know, between each circulation of elites. Um, the Hesiodic cycle is much longer term. And this is where you get the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age. Yeah, the theory of metallurgic degeneration. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it, exactly. Um, and those cycles are much longer term and much kind of more civilizational, I guess. They last for hundreds, thousands of years. Um, and you get, I mean, as I talk about, you get glimpses of this in the Bible and the book of Daniel, um, that the, the ancient Persians had a version of this. Uh, so this idea of the, the gold, and I mean, we were talking about comics before, mm. we, even like the comic book industry has a golden age, a silver age, a bronze age. And, and it's evident that that's deteriorated yeah. from source these days. So. Yes. And, and, and the idea of, of that is also ultimately built on the the uh, the doctrine of the castes so you have in the um you know in the golden age you have this warrior this warrior priest this spiritual king who can embody both spirit and the sword in one figure this is a kind of golden emperor or something um but that degenerates and a priestly caste come to dominate. So the Silver Age is actually one where the priests predominate. 
and it becomes more because they're not warriors it becomes more feminine it becomes more l- lunar um and then at some point the warriors get fed up of this they get fed up of being told what to do by priests and they return but this time they return as mere brute so the bronze age is the return of the warrior caste but this time they're just out to kind of you know raid villages and rape and pillage and things like this and they rule directly through force but then and uh this is where the the economic stuff is downstream from all of this when you zoom out enough if you think about a warrior caste who take over a huge amount of land Genghis Khan good example right they then create ironically peace and safety within the area they rule mm. once they've done their raping of villages and so on they also have to establish law and order yeah the remit of your territory cr- requires the creation of managerial class to administrate it right it, it, exactly so you there so but another thing that happens is that you have this um large area of peace that is maintained by some conquering group the mongols let's run with that example which then gives rise to free trade commerce within that zone which naturally makes lots of people quite rich merchants so you get the rise of a merchant caste who then in time with a combination of the administrators who need to kind of collect taxes and things like this basically end up taking over and that's where you get the uh another degeneration from the bronze age to the iron age which is a purely material time um where the top interest is economic is how do we expand trade or do we make more money mm. um and they've liquidated the founding spirit that created the institutions and, which gave and, them prosperity in the and first by the place. time you get to that point that original god emperor figure the you know the golden age spirit of the warrior priest is long lost i mean it's just you know in in the normal people it may even be a flickering candle about to go out or it could be completely dead so that's interesting because so. before we came on air you you said something which surprised me that you don't think that the current crop of managerial elites are very materialistic so from my conception i've always seen them as quite materialistic because of the obsession with gdp line go up the retinencing of cultural incompatibilities by the people they import the idea that they're just abstract economic actors mm-hmm. and i also i don't see a lot of them having strong religious convictions other than the hindus and and muslims which have now become the the sort of partition playing out between scotland and england and increasingly america now with vivek ramaswamy so why are they not as materialistic as i think well what i had in mind there really is that i would i would draw a distinction between these sorts of characters and the likes of tony blair who are actually technocratic and quite materialistic in their thinking uh and genuinely practical managers pure managers i would draw a distinction between that type and uh what people would call the woke and i think if you have a look at the actions of the woke as a as a type of ruling class they do not take decisions based on merit or material gain or i mean you can just have a look at i don't know 
Bud Light or something mm. like that to see that um, in some cases ideology has trumped economics. Um, and they do, I mean, it, it comes out in a really warped way, but in a, in a strange way, that sort of like, like the woke world has its own heroes, right? It has its own mythology, but it's such a, it's so kind of inverted and it's, it's kind of like an inverted or warped heroism that is trying to come through in a way. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, a lot of people have said it's a religion. I, I would hesitate to call it a religion because um, if you have a look at the genesis of any true religion, a period of suffering, a period of hardship is necessary for something to truly become a religion. And um, in order for woke to actually become a religion, you'd need to see what they're like under hardship, mm. i.e., these beliefs aren't going to win you status. These beliefs aren't going to win you a promotion at work. These beliefs aren't going to, you're actually going to, if you're going to continue to believe these things, you're going to, you're going to take costs, right? This is why Rob Henderson calls them luxury beliefs, not just because they currently allow you to accrue social capital, but because they're reliant on technological prosperity and that return to fresh prints, complacency of the 1990s, the end of history, to be the fertile soil from which they spring. I mean, this is a, this is the thing I've kept hammering home to the likes of Matt Walsh and of Helen Joyce. Mm -hmm. They don't understand that transgenderism is a tech problem. Like you, you mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to have the ideology if there weren't the instruments and devices to so, legitimate it. So, so I, I mean, I'd certainly agree that. So, so what I'm saying is, is that the effect of their thinking and the the way they're thinking is ideological it's almost quasi-religious but this is a religion that's not been tested by history yes right and to truly be tested they would need actually to suffer persecutions like the sort of persecutions that the likes of us have you know i, I say i mean uh, professional social costs for having these beliefs mm. it doesn't win you status yet you still hold those beliefs, right? Um, and that that will be the true test of woke. How do they how do they fare in a time where they don't have every institution behind them? Mm. Um, and uh, I I'm more inclined to think that a lot of it will wither away mm. at that point because it's a lot of it is status signaling and the kind of uh, kind of cultural economics, if you want. Uh, you know, it's not money that they're looking for, it's- Recognition. It's recognition and a kind of social currency. Mm. That's what they're after, but mm. anyway. Well, yeah. speaking on the on the topic of religion then, you also contrasted the ancient Greek cyclical ones with the progressive theory of history, capital P progressive. And and you found this germination in, in the Christian tradition, which I, I found quite interesting. I, I would agree, particularly because liberalism sprung from, from Christianity. To deracinate liberalism from Christianity turns it into this metastasizing social uh, acid force. I, I I think the the delineation that I would have made there um, would be that, and I think this is made later on by some of the other theorists, of you cannot serve God and mammon. If you're in proximate distance of something you can't displace and you can't steward history, it will just be a disjunction when judgment comes. But as soon as you rip out that religion, that, that founding ethic that created those traditions that sprung from hardship, as you said, you then appoint man, the kind of Tony Blair style steward towards, towards its end. So is, and, and this would be my question, I suppose then, is the progressive arrogance a consequence of post-Christianity, 
or is a consequence of how liberalism thinks of itself as the apotheosis of the Enlightenment. You know, the, the, the final ideal, we've solved the problem of natural law mm-hmm. and the like. Um, well, I mean, the, the one distinction I, I think it's important to draw straight away is that um, the linear history that you get from Christianity, if you read it in people like St. Augustine or um, there's a guy, uh, there's a guy called Otto of Freiburg. He, he was right. He was like a 12th century monk. Um, is that their linear history was pessimistic. It actually gets worse through time. It's like, it's, it's like a kind of, um, there's the city of man and the city of God, right? But the city of God only comes right at the end, at the final at the final judgment. Um, and I mean, there are uh, theological disputes over, you know, some of them say there's a period of a thousand years where the city of God actually exists on earth. Mm. Others just say, well, it's a metaphor at the end. We won't get into that because uh, it starts making my head hurt to talk about theology. But in the comments uh, will be a disaster. Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 exactly. I mean, even saying that is probably uh, too much. But um, and at some point, the that pessimism is turned upside down. Um, but once you see the once you see the uh, the basic shape. It's undeniable that a kind of Protestant sh- version of history reconfigures itself as a secular progressive doctrine. To take Tony Blair as an example, one of the things I find fascinating about him is that he always talks about the future as inevitable. Now, it's always inevitable in the way that he wants it, which is for kind of interesting. And there's a certain power to that. But it's unmistakably Christian in shape, right? Because no matter what happens, the second coming and the final judgment are at the end. It's just that they've replaced what's at the end with something else. The, I mean, it could be the socialist utopia, it could be the progressive utopia. What that looks like, I don't know. In, in, I mean, in Tony Blair's vision is a kind of, terrifying dystopia where there's digital ID and uh, the entire world is in one kind of, it's basically the matrix. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.